Welcome to Broadband Action, a podcast presented by the Community Broadband Action Network. I'm Curtis Dean, one of the co-founders of C-Band. Thanks for joining us on the pod today. Ever since the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, or the NTIA, released its rules on the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, also known as BEAD, there's been a lot of conversation in the industry and a little bit of hand-wringing over exactly whether that program will live up to its expectations and its goal of filling in many of America's broadband gaps. Joining us today is uh, someone who's talked on not only on his um, own podcast, Connect This, but also on other platforms about some of the things that are maybe flaws or things that are maybe wrong with BEAD. And I'm talking about Christopher Mitchell. Christopher is with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. He's a friend of CBAN, and we want to thank him for uh, coming on. You've been a guest on our pr presentations in the past. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thanks for doing uh, this work. Got to yeah, keep appreciate it. That local organizing. Yeah, well, that we're working on it. We're sure trying. So, all right, Chris, big question. What is wrong with BEAD? Uh, um, there's a lot of different directions to go with that. I feel like anyone- <laughs> We only have in, 20 minutes, so yeah. Well, I feel like anyone that's been involved with it would prefer if I start by just noting it is it is a historic investment. Uh, it is very challenging to get these things right. And uh, I am really excited because I think that we will see a lot of good come out of it, even if um, the program doesn't work the way it would if you and I were in charge of it. Right. Um, now, and so there's, there's definitely a reality that um, I think a number of people in Congress that really were behind this program uh, would have liked to have seen some of the changes that you and I would suggest. But uh, Congress is, uh, you know, it's a matter of getting something through or, you know, or, or talking about the uh, what's what's the best thing in the world. And I'm glad they got something through. So yeah. I think like there's important context there. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you there. The so, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That's for sure. Right. And um, and one of the things to note is that bead is explicitly designed to focus on the most rural areas, mm -hmm. right? Like we're talking about $42.5 billion for infrastructure. And that money is overwhelmingly going to go to uh, fewer than 10 million households. Uh, you know, we have tens of millions of households that need better service. Many of them have some level of service today. But this money is really going to go almost entirely to people who live in the most rural areas. Right. Um, and that's okay because we need to invest there. But there's a historic underinvestment in places that don't need service. And I feel like one of the problems with BEAD is the Biden administration's talking points that they're going to connect everyone, right? Right. Um, and they're not going to do that. Like, there's not enough money even to connect uh, everyone here um, when you look at the lowest or when you look at the highest cost areas, the most rural areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I think that we expect that tribal areas will be left behind even after this money is spent. Really? Really? I was going to ask you about that because you guys are doing a lot of good stuff in engaging with tribal organizations. And is that because of the lack of funds that are going in under the tribal portion of BEAD or is it just in general? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really smart that Congress did allocate money that's specifically available to tribes. And it's on the order of $3 billion that is only accessible by tribes. Right. But credible estimates by Matt Rantanen, who really worked on this with the Obama White House, uh, put the total need at, at well over $10 billion. Okay. And so there's $7 billion of unmet need that, that you know, some of which might be able to, um, you know, be financed by tribes. Uh, some of the tribes that um, have access to capital may be able to do a match. So, I mean, we don't necessarily need 100% of the cost to be borne by uh, taxpayers, but the um, we expect that there's a significant amount of tribal connectivity that will still need to happen. And in some places, you know, like um, uh, California, where they have 109 tribes, uh, we don't think that there's enough money to mm. to connect all of the tribes when you look at all the federal money. And so, you know, we'll see what California does. They've already added some extra money from their own sources uh, to supplement some of the funds that are available. Uh, but, you know, it'll be on a state-by-state -state uh, basis as to how this is resolved. And a fair number of the states don't have a very good history of working with tribes to meet their needs. Uh, so I think this is going to be one of the tension areas uh, right. that we see. Um, and, and I guess one of the other things that I'll note, um, about this that's, that's related is that, um, I'm a bit worried that some states are going to mess up something that's within their power. And, you know, I'm. I should note that I, I helped cause this problem, like me among many other people. We felt that the Federal Communications Commission could not be trusted to disperse billions of dollars more in, in federal broadband subsidies because they've done such a bad job of giving them out. They've mostly given them to the biggest telephone companies who have pocketed the money, not made upgrades, and generally left people pretty poorly off. And the FCC has just done that over and over again. So... Uh, we pushed for more decision-making at a local level and for states to be doing this. So the fact that states have a lot of power to set the agenda now is uh, both a feature and a bug, I think. Definitely. And the, the lumpiness of states' capacity has certainly, to me, been one of the big challenges of this whole program. They're all scrambling now, right? But for And, and for states that have had established, well-run broadband programs for years, they're certainly um, in better position to implement this new funding when it's finally, uh, released to them. But wow, there are just a lot of States, big and small that are really going to be scrambling to not be left behind. And so one of the things States have to decide is what is the threshold at which they will stop funding fiber to the home networks, right? Which is to say that, you know, they, um, they get to decide what is extremely high cost in areas that are not considered extremely high cost. Uh, will be expected to deliver fiber optics, we believe. You know, it's certainly a very high quality um, bar that um, that uh, the network that will have to be built with those dollars. But but then the states will set, set that threshold. And so mm. you could imagine that Iowa, which has done a pretty good job of distributing public dollars in, in terms of including uh, the, the co-ops, the municipalities and private companies in um, expanding Internet access to rural areas of Iowa. You know, you might have a reasonable threshold, but Nebraska might not. And right. so you could end up with Nebraska where, where CenturyLink kind of calls the shots, um, you know, up and down the, the, the government there and state and local. And they might set um, a threshold that results in a lot more wireless 
being deployed in Nebraska that is not as effective in terms of meeting the long-term needs of people or even being as cost-effective. Because, you know, I fundamentally think that, um, you know, cooperatives and some private companies deploying fiber optics will be much more cost effective than than many of the wireless companies would claim, uh, even though there are some wireless companies that do a good job. It's right. all of this stuff is nuanced. You know, you can't be too um, you can't be too concrete in our criticisms, unfortunately. That's right. And, and you look at, um, you know, a lot of, you know, in, in rural areas, um, there are incumbents that have territories in you know, these incumbent exchange areas. The ones that are served by the bigger companies um, tend to be the ones that have had the least technologically uh, advancement over the years. So those larger incumbent providers are, of course, going to say, oh, no, it's just too expensive to build out there. You should set the threshold lower and then we'll just do, you know, something that's better than nothing. And, uh, you know, you've seen that in, in, in case after case. Um, and, and we'll probably continue to see that. Um, one of- yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that I agree that we should not fund AT&T or CenturyLink to build fiber optics in rural areas because they are so grossly inefficient compared Correct. to local providers <laughs> that have proven time and time again that they can be trusted to do this at an affordable rate and keep uh, keep rates affordable over the long term and, and meet local needs. They actually care about whether they're doing good customer service. Uh, there's so many benefits that, that come with that. So um, so anyway, I mean, I think states like Iowa, they get it better than some of the other states. So, you know, I don't know how much of that credit is yours. I don't want to give you very much credit for it. but <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, sir, I, I take no credit. I take uh, the, the, the people who get credit. And Iowa's an interesting situation. We've talked about this in the past. We have so many little independent telephone companies in this state, you know, farmers and businessmen telephones from the, you know, mid-1920s there's been so effective at, you know, reaching out to local lawmakers and then on the state level to advocate for their case. So the big companies have less of a voice, say, maybe in a state like Iowa, where there are, you know, 120 phone companies versus another type, another state where there may only be five or six companies, three of them are big incumbents, and they call the shots. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that is related to that is the way the big companies are convincing local folks not to do anything. Yeah. And, and I think this is also a problem that's kind of on bead, but not, it might be unfair to put it on bead or the Biden administration, but there's all these places that aren't going to get money, right? Like Des Moines is not going to get money. Like a lot of the suburbs around Des Moines are not going to get money or they're going to get such a small amount that doesn't matter too much. Many of them would like to have a better service, but they are holding back on putting their own money in because they're hopeful that the federal government will be writing them a check. But I don't think we're expecting them to get a check. Uh, right. You know, I mean, I think like I think Mesa, Arizona right now, right, is flirting with like multiple different providers. And and I get a sense that like in the back of their head, one of the things that they were doing was thinking, oh, the federal government might be writing us a check. And um, big cities aren't getting anything out of this package. <laughs> Not very much anyway. What's the first question that somebody asks me or any of our C-band group when they call to, or that, you know, they become engaged with C-band, is there any money available? Mm-hmm. Right. And unfortunately, you know, most of the time you take a look at it and say, uh, not so much for your community because you're already served by incumbent providers. They meet the definition of served. 
uh, even though you may say you're poorly served or unreliably served, um, since served is really attached to some arbitrary speed number. Sorry, Charlie, if you're going to do anything on a local level, you're going to have to use private and public capital to do it. Not You're not going to be able to rely on federal public capital. So, yeah. Yes. And and I, mean, I think this ties into another one of the issues with BEAD, which is a failure of the FCC to have any good maps, also a failure of states to have done good mapping proactively. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you may have areas that, um, you know, you may have suburbs, you may even have core cities that have significant pockets where there is no service. Right. right? I think a lot of us assume that cable is in most places and it is. But when you're talking about tens of millions of people living in urban areas, you know, even if you have 3% of those unserved, that's a heck of a lot of households mm. that are not served. We don't have good maps on them. And right now we are waiting to even disperse money to states for the FCC to improve its mapping, something that uh, many of us think um, won't be happening under the even the, the pessimistic timelines, right? The right. FCC has said by the end of the year, they've, they had said other things prior, they've pushed it back. Many of us would be surprised if we have good maps one year from today. And so, you know, there's all kinds of problems. And yet uh, we don't we, we see that we're, we're sort of waiting for maps to come out, even mm -hmm. though we generally know where the areas are that need to at least we can, where we need to get started. That's another case where it's going to be lumpy state by state. Right. I, I, I'm bringing up the um, newest, latest and greatest Iowa broadband map, the state of Iowa version five. They just released this about two weeks ago. It is much more granular. It is down to the address level. We're in an appeal process right now in Iowa where people can go in and say, oh, this is accurate, this isn't. And basically on this map, black is served and blue is unserved. So, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't take long once you dig down into a more local level, you start to see some of the flaws in the map. And, um, you know, uh, there are C-band members right now that are working uh, with people like uh, me and Doug Dawson and others in the industry to say, hey, this is wrong. Help us appeal this. So um, certainly that's going to be a problem as other states get their more granular maps out there in the in the public eye. So mapping's an issue. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of the tribal uh, deficiencies. And gee, that's not the first time that's happened where America's tribal communities have been left behind. Um, another thing that I've heard uh, is just some of the rules are going to make it very complicated, difficult, or maybe even impossible for some of the very types of com uh, uh, community-based providers that we really want if possible, to fill these gaps, whether they be municipalities or uh, independent telephone companies or uh, uh, electric cooperatives. And that are some of the, you know, just some of the hoops that they'll have to jump through. Um, talk a little bit about some of those that are out there that are causing some angst. Yeah, one is a, um, a an irrevocable letter of credit. And I believe that, you know, I, I heard multiple people saying that this would be softened a bit. Uh, but this is an, one of multiple issues, which is a case in which uh, NTIA is very worried about giving money to an entity that will not do a good job. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is in some ways one of the issues that we've been deeply concerned about with the Rural Digital Opportunities Fund. They don't um, want to be the FCC. Come on, man. Right. And so they've decided and I you know, we we're mad at the FCC because it didn't do enough front end quality assurance 
of who is bidding very good, in, in very in good qualifier there because they are right. they're they're doing better on the back end right but it's and, taken and one years. of the things in b top that people were frustrated with is that um you know some of those awards uh the providers that that got them or the the the, the entities the coalitions that got the money under b top in the first stimulus in 2009 era um, they didn't always meet their obligations. And I feel like NTIA has taken that in the wrong direction hmm. because the problem with BTOP was a lack of enforcement on the back end, not a lack of rigorous assessment on the front end. And I feel like NTIA has said, we're going to do so much on the front end that we'll have to worry less about the back end. Yeah. And that's wrong. It's very wrong. It's super wrong <laughs> because one of the things we've seen is that the entity that built the BTOP network, they followed the rules. Then they sold it to someone. And that new entity is supposed to abide by the rules, but they're like, eh, there's no cop on the beat. I'm not worried, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and they do what they want and they raise prices and they don't um, abide by the, by the neutrality. They're supposed to, you know, be providing an open access connection to other entrants, but they're discriminating against certain people that want to get transit. And so uh, we see a real problem with that. And I feel like NTIA is just too focused on the front end. They've erected this, the, all these various requirements, whether yeah. it's around, you know, the, the labor and the contractor requirements, um, you know, and, and, you know, a number of these things are justifiable, right? Like, I, I don't want to see federal dollars going to providers that are going to pay people crummy wages. But many of the people working in rural areas that have a history there are paying good wages, right? Like, right. like they're paying the, the wages that are in line. It's just that the federal government does, hasn't developed a good way to actually verify that. And so the federal government steps in and basically says, well... If you're in Southwest Iowa, you got to pay the wages they pay for construction in Des Moines. And that's mm -hmm. not an appropriate, that's going to break the budget of folks that are trying to build in Southwest Iowa. Right. And you have these odd things then where you have a, a company that's been building infrastructure for 20 years and now they have to change their pay scale for certain people on certain projects. That's ugly. You know, you have people who are like, I want to work on that project. I'm going to get paid 50% more. Well, sure. But like, you know, not everyone can do that. Um, so... So there's a variety of challenges that come out how the federal government is trying to do things it want to do, wants to do. And all of that paperwork results in smaller providers being scared off and companies like Mediacom, Charter, Comcast, AT&T, you know, they're, they're the ones that are willing to say, we'll figure it out. We can do that paperwork. We've got lots right. of lawyers. We'll sign off on it. And on top of it, we know that at the end of the day, as long as we're only mildly negligent, the government's not going to come after us exactly. because- the government doesn't want to go after anyone that has teams of lawyers. I mean, we see this all the times with corporate crime and, and, and the government, you know, when they're enforcing this stuff, they're going to go after a small provider and small providers are right to be nervous about getting entangled in this. And I, it breaks my heart because we don't want to see them, them not being eligible for the funding, but many of them will self-select to not apply for these funds yeah. uh, is what we're fearing. Um, you know, I've, I could very well be wrong in a year or two if we see that small providers are saying, we figured out how to navigate it. The Biden administration made sure that it works for us, then great. But my concern is we, we may not see that. That's, that's a case where um, the fact that this is going to take a while to roll out may be actually helpful because it will hopefully allow maybe some tweaking around the edges and, and also help smaller providers demystify what's in it, right? It'll also help, you know, a lot of these small providers heavily rely on outside firms and consulting firms to do all that for them. So right. it'll allow those firms to be able to, you know, 
more clearly define how that, you know, how, how those meeting all those rules uh, makes it harder to get a project done. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, uh, we could talk about this all day, by the way, I think we all know that, um, is, um, and this was something I brought up at a town meeting with an Iowa representative, Cindy Axney, and a lot of heads were nodding in the meeting about the, the way things stand a company that receives the bead funding is going to pay taxes oh, yeah. on the bead funds. And that immediately takes that 65, 75, whatever percent match that is and knocks it down by 30% of that. That seems like almost a non-starter as far as most small companies go. And Big companies probably could just say, oh, well, we'll find a way to write off a loss. We're really good at that. Yeah, we we were deeply concerned when this change was made. Uh, it comes from, I want to say, like the 2017 Congress, I believe. Yeah, it's um, something that had nothing to do with Yeah, it was a tax bill. And now, it's one yeah. of those things that... Um, I felt like that Congress, um, which, you know, you, you kind of you, sometimes happens when you have the same party in charge of everything. They didn't take their job very seriously. They came up with a tax bill at the last second. No one had read it and made a bunch of changes. No one had any idea what it was. One of those things was actually taxing cooperatives. Um, mm -hmm. And so nonprofit cooperatives were starting to be taxed if they took broadband subsidies, which was a major concern. And I believe that was resolved uh, by a bipartisan group that had pushed that through. Uh, at that time, it also became true that broadband subsidies would be taxed by for-profit entities. And also, this also hits co-ops that have partnerships with right. uh, in certain conditions. And uh, many senators are aware of this. And they, and they only think it's a problem when they're talking in public. Uh, the, but in private, when they're when like, you know, uh, when um, when um, Mike um, Romano with um, mm -hmm. NTCA, when he talks to them about it because like they've been making a big deal about this for a long time. Uh, they're kind of like, yeah, like it's, it seems not, not fair, but like, Hey, like it work kind of works for us that, you know, we get to brag that we're putting more money into broadband than we really are. And then we'll and take right back. <laughs> exactly. And so like, there's a cynical game that many senators play. And, uh, and I've heard that, that, uh, you know, that, that multiple times I've heard that senators, including Mark Werner in Virginia would be leading an effort to make sure that we are not taxing broadband subsidies, but, uh, that change hasn't been made. I don't know what's happening there. It's still, and it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an oversight, right? At this point, right. it could have been fixed. It's a feature, and, not a bug. <laughs> and our Congress people are simply not willing to make the fix. Yeah. Well, um, we should not be surprised that tough decisions like that are hard to implement because it happens every day in Washington. And that's why when big bills like the, uh, um, the bill that uh, came, the, the infrastructure bill, when they, when they do actually happen, it's shocking that anything got that far. Um, but certainly, I would say that's something that community-focused providers need to be talking to their representatives and their senators all the time about. And, and hopefully and the they're media. getting an earful when they're out doing their town meetings during uh, recess. Yes, and, and I think we need, we need a lot of news stories about this, too. Yeah, um, absolutely. because I think that's what actually will result in some more likely change. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll say that, like, 
I, I think as a result of this program, um, you know, it's going to go less far than we thought it would because of supply chain challenges. Um, there's uh, requirements that require more building um, buy in the USA. And, and I'm broadly, you know, I think you've heard Doug Dawson and I are both broadly in support of this, although we're recognized it's really hard to implement and it's going to be a challenge. But right. um, we think that that is going to help the United States in the long term be a stronger nation. Um, but it will delay and raise the cost of projects, unfortunately. Um, and so that's that's going to happen. Absolutely. One other thing I want to hit on quick before we are done today, and that is um, some of the um, language in Bede that talk about affordability. Um, and, you know, affordability has not really been addressed much in previous programs. It's all been about speed. Um, and so there, there are elements in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the bill, in the law, that are going to promote not only um, uh, uh, low-income affordability, but also talking about middle-class affordability. And I've talked to a number of providers that they just scratch their heads and say, we don't know what that means yet. I think... They're right to scratch their heads and different <laughs> states will have different interpretations of what that means. But I think that when Congress put that in, what they had in mind is that they didn't want to see this money going out to Charter Spectrum, for instance, which I expect to get a lot of this money mm. and then see Charter Spectrum raise their bills by five dollars every year for the rest of our lives yeah, uh, so that we're all paying more than one hundred dollars a month for Internet service that was paid for significantly by U.S. taxpayers, um, you know, and and it is and they're able to raise those prices because of a failure of public policy that helps them keep their monopolies rather than encouraging competition. Uh, that's where that comes from. But, you know, when you're talking about a local provider here looking at, you know, 8% inflation potentially mm -hmm. trying to figure out what it means to keep their prices affordable. I understand that they're like, look, this is hard enough without us trying to like explain to the state how we're going to do it. And, and so I definitely have sympathy, but I feel like this again is where we have to have that kind of language as long as we're we're just shoveling such money at these big companies that are focused on extracting yeah. wealth from us rather than the local companies that are actually just trying to provide a service with pride. Well, it, perhaps that's one that maybe um, community focused, community based providers um, that like the ones that are part of C band, like the ones that you work with uh, at uh, uh, ILSR, perhaps they'll be able to learn enough about that to understand. Maybe that's not a barrier. Um, we can make a strong case that we're, we're offering um, reasonably, reasonably uh, logical rates to our customers, even, you know, if it's not some arbitrary number. I mean, like with the ACP, you know, this, 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 the monthly subsidy, you've got providers that are, you know, actually offering a tier of services so that the customer walks out the door with free internet, uh, and I applaud them for doing that, but that's just simply not possible with a smaller provider that can't uh, they can't uh, subsidize those costs among a huge customer base. They're going to be required to they're going to be having to make some tough decisions and conversations with their customers about I can't get you free internet, but I can get you thirty dollars off my fifty five dollar internet. So. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what we see is that you know. Even nonprofit organizations, they're they're needing an average revenue per user, ARPU, you know, in the neighborhood of fifty or sixty dollars a month. Um, mm -hmm. Often, you know, I wouldn't say often, but I get sometimes more than that. And and that means that if you're offering a free connection, for every free connection, you got to get a hundred dollars from someone or yes. more, and yeah. and that's hard. And so, um, you know, 
there's definitely um, the ACP helps while it's around, but our forecast suggests that the ACP will expire uh, without if it's not been refunded, if there's not new money put into it. In 2024, it will run out. Wow. Uh, if no one new signs up for ACP for the rest of that time, it will run out in November of 2024. And if a significant number of new people sign up, and we're not talking about everyone, just a significant number of new people sign up, it could run out as early as February of 2024. So, you know, you have provide you have companies that might commit to offering that service, but what happens if we go eight months or 10 months between ACP running out and Congress bothering to put more money into it? Uh, well, they never do that, Chris. <laughs> it's a significant problem. It it's like, you know, these small, you've got a few thousand subscribers on a network, or even, even if you've got 10,000 subscribers, you have hundreds of people that you need to keep connected, but they can't pay their bill anymore. That's that's really hard. Um, you know, uh, we're not talking about none of these folks are putting billions of dollars away to shareholders each year. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, some of the big cable companies sure. are. Well, that's a long-term fix. That's gotta be resolved. This, I mean, we should all be advocating for it right now. It kind of feeds into the whole, we got to resolve, we got to, uh, reform universal service and how we fund universal service in this country and what that means. I've been hopeful that at some point we'll all agree as human beings and compassionate with our fellow man that universal service will be funded more equitably and to a higher extent so that it can take over that ACP um, funding stream at some point. But yes, that's a whole other political animal that we really could talk for a week if we kept on that. So, yeah. So I have to say that for C-Band members, we have a, an exciting new service, which I think is related to all this and that we're trying to build more local knowledge and excitement around uh, digital equity, around better Internet access and that sort of a thing. Um, so we have we have two different programs now that are both I think C-Band audience members probably know a lot of this stuff, but you all may know people who would benefit from this kind of training. And um, and so we have two things that we're doing. One is a, kind of a boot camp is what we call it. It's a two day intense affair that really focuses on broadband technologies and policies and and funding opportunities. And for people who are like, I know we got to do something on broadband, but I don't know what it is. And I don't really know the difference between cable and fiber or whatever. You know, um, we we can work with uh, local folks to put together a two day event to really help people get up to speed and confident on it. Um, and then, and that's sort of where you might have a concentration of folks like, you know, for instance, like Waterloo, right? Maybe Waterloo has like 20 or 30 people that would benefit from going through that all at once. Um, that would be great. Um, on the other hand, if you have a number of people, like three to five people in a community who um, really want to learn this stuff, um, they could benefit from our Let's Get Going broadband program, mm -hmm. uh, which is a multi-week. It's going to be an eight-week course um, where we put people from different communities together to like learn a lot of those same topics, uh, but a little bit more in depth and to build relationships to figure out how to build those local strategies uh, to make a difference on those issues. And, was, uh, and I should say the let's get going broadband program is, is something we charged for. It's $15,000 per community. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're hoping that that's uh, an amount that will be appropriate for, um, uh, all of the learning that'll be done and, um, and being able to rapidly get you to take advantage of some of the, the money that's out there and things like that. Fantastic. So excited. You guys, uh, are launching these programs. Uh, we'll do our part to help, uh, spread the word as best we can. 
best way for you to learn more about it uh, is and all about the uh, Institute for Local Self-Reliance is go to muninetworks.org and uh, you'll see all the amazing content they produce. Check out their podcasts, check out their webcasts, and uh, and uh, Chris, we'll probably see you at a future C-Band event as we uh, move forward with uh, all the stuff that we have going on. Thank you so much for coming on again today. Appreciate Sounds it. Sounds good. I appreciate uh, the chance. It's always great at, to talk to you. Absolutely. Our guest today has been Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Check him out again at muninetworks.org. Thanks again for joining us on Broadband Action. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Broadband Action Podcast. We encourage you to like or subscribe for future content here on the podcast. Spread the word. And thanks for joining us. Thank you.